Welcome to The Vast Majority. I am Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, and I am joined uh, by a, a special guest co-host, and that is Megan Day, staff writer at Jacobin. Hi, Megan. Hi. Hopefully listeners of this podcast, readers of Jacobin, will be familiar with uh, who you are. Uh, we did this conversation uh, with Kim Moody just now uh, that the listeners will be hearing in a second. And uh, it's a conversation about the dirty break strategy, uh, which uh, Eric Blanc and Kim Moody will define at some some length. Uh, you and I are not exactly neutral interlocutors on this question, since we, uh, in our book, Bigger Than Bernie, wrote at length about this question, our sort of partisans of it. Uh, but... Kim Moody uh, is somebody who disagrees with it, and he's somebody who I think both of us really respect for uh, his, what you know the, the many decades of labor organizing and writing that he has done. Uh, and even if we don't uh, necessarily agree with him on this question, I think that his uh, his perspective on the question of uh, a dirty break electoral strategy is one that's uh, worth wrestling with. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it was great to get the opportunity to talk to Kim about this. And I think this is a pretty wide ranging conversation that will give listeners to this podcast a good sense of what the dirty break strategy actually refers to. And also at the same time, give people a sense of what some of the sticking points are and, and where where people are coming from when they express pessimism about or skepticism of the dirty break strategy. So yeah, I think it's really useful. I'm glad we did this and uh, everybody have fun listening. Uh, so Kim Moody is one of the founders of Labor Notes. He's a longtime labor writer and activist. He's written many books, uh, most recently Tramps and Trade Union Travelers, which is now out from Haymarket Books. And he also lives in the UK, uh, despite the fact that he's an American, which uh, will, is important information to know because he makes uh, references several times to here being the UK for him. Eric Blanc is a regular contributor to Jacobin. He has been on this podcast several times before. Uh, he's the author of Red State Revolt, a great chronicle about the Red State teachers' strike wave that kicked off in 2018. Uh, and he also coined the term the dirty break, which is the, uh, the, the term and the strategy that is under discussion here. So um, I will link to Eric's original article about the dirty break, as well as Kim's response to him in New Politics about the dirty break. And uh, listeners can uh, check out the articles there to get the, uh, the the kind of the Minnesota Farm Labor Party Farmer Labor Party uh, heavy <laughs> version of history. We don't actually talk about uh, the Minnesota uh, example in this discussion, but that is what the uh, the original articles uh, were sort of uh, dueling over. But of course, uh, any discussion of that history is really about socialist strategy today. Uh, so that is what we talked about with Kim and Eric. So here's our discussion. Kim and Eric, welcome. Thanks for having Thank us so let's start with uh, Eric. Eric, you wrote this article for Jacobin and a series of other articles uh, about this idea of the dirty break that has been pretty influential, I would say, in Democratic Socialists of America circles in terms of people f trying to figure out what their uh, electoral and political strategy should be. So why don't you start with just a uh, basic case for uh, the dirty break? What is it? What does it look like? Uh, and all the rest of that. I think the first thing to say is the 
the starting point of the strategy in some ways is that the working class needs its own political party, an independent political party of and for the working class. So this is a long-standing position of the socialist movement, goes back a long time, but it also is just borne out by the evidence. Like, if you look at the United States, why is the U.S. working class uh, both less class conscious and why is it one significantly less from the state than, for instance, most other advanced industrialized countries? And there's various reasons, but one of the most important is just we don't have our own party, and that's meant that the level of uh, class consciousness is lower. It's meant that our welfare state is weaker. And if we're ever going to get beyond that to socialism, it's basically inconceivable to do that without some sort of political party uh, to help that process move forward. So it's a really central strategic task. And until we have our own party, we're going to be fighting the bosses, you know, with one hand tied behind our back. That then raises the question, well, how do you do it? Obviously, it's very hard in the United States. Uh, we live in one of the least democratic capitalist uh, democracies in the world. There's a lot of um, sort of regime anti-democratic obstacles that's made it so that attempts over and over in this country to build a third party have failed. And so we need to grapple with why that is uh, and what we can do to not just repeat the mistakes of the past. And so there's basically been two strategies historically that the left has put forward in this country to move in the direction of a mass workers party or social democratic party. The first is what we could call the realignment strategy, which is basically let's try to take over the democratic party, transform it into a workers party. Um, And that is, for instance, what Bernie is advocating now. It's what AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is advocating. And it's also what historically the DSA used to advocate before it made more of a shift to the left um, since 2016. I think on the whole, the verdict of that strategy has been pretty negative. The attempts to take over the Democratic Party have not only failed, but haven't really come close to succeeding. And moreover, in the attempts to try to take over the Democratic Party, uh, the left has more often than not been co-opted. So it's not just kind of a failure, but actually counterproductive. I think me and Kim probably agree on that. The other strategy, historically, is what has usually been called the clean break strategy, which is more or less that under no conditions should socialists uh, support running candidates on the ballots of either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. So you, you always run your own candidates against the existing parties. And the idea is that sooner or later, you'll build up the forces to have a mass socialist party or mass workers party. And that has been tried, um, and at least for the last 70 years, with very little success. And again, that has to do with a lot of the major obstacles in this country as far as the regime, um, also the weakness of the labor movement. Um, But the verdict, I think, for socialists, and I used to support this position up until the Bernie campaign, just, you know, all cards on the table. I thought it made sense. Um, and did in most other countries work, but in this country it hasn't led to the formation of a workers' party. So that raises a question because the left in trying, the far left in trying the realignment has gotten co-opted in trying to do the clean break has mostly remained marginal. So if you think about kind of the Green Party or different 
uh, independent left campaigns, it hasn't really, they haven't really gotten anywhere. And so I wrote an article maybe two or three years now, uh, two or three years ago, about trying to chart out a different course. And I should just say that I, a lot of this is building off of work sort of strategically and in practice that has already been done uh, within DSA. So I don't want to like take full credit for it. I coined the term dirty break, which I think is sort of, it's, it's a nice catchy term. But a lot of the strategy predates the article. And it's it really the basic argument that I put forward and what the essence of the dirty break strategy is, is that you should use the Democratic Party ballot line to build up independent working class and socialist organization until you're strong enough to break from the Democratic Party and form a new party or until you're strong enough that the Democratic Party itself kicks you out and sort of forces a break. So the idea is that you can use the Democratic Party ballot line, um, but while remaining independent of the party structures as a whole, meaning both organizationally and politically, and using that to build up independent working class movements, organization, and in the direction of your own workers' party. That's the goal. And so that's a little bit different than some of the thinking within DSA before. Some listeners might have read an article or various articles by Seth Ackerman, who I think probably really wrote one of the more influential takes on using the Democratic Party ballot line that I think informs a lot of DSA members still today. It's not the case that everybody within DSA supports the dirty break strategy. In some ways, it, the, the prevailing wisdom is probably closer, closer to Seth's argument, which is agnostic on whether the use of the Democratic Party ballot line will have to sooner or later create a new party. The idea there is, well, you can, given the structure of the U.S. political regime in which primaries are run by the state rather than parties, and in which our parties are in some ways not real mass membership parties, um, that creates both an obstacle, it means that you're not going to be able to take over the party because there's nothing really to take over, but it also means that you can use the ballot line independently to build up your own organization, have your own program, have candidates that are accountable to kind of something built uh, from the bottom up that's not accountable to the Democratic Party capital structures. And I think that, again, just to reiterate, me and Kim really agree that the Democratic Party structures are inherently capitalist, and it's not something that we should try to take over. But I think Really, the more important point, and this is one I want to talk about now, is just why is it important today for socialists to not give up what is a really important strategic arena, which is running socialists on the Democratic Party ballot line? And like, what is the evidence we have for why this strategy is more effective than the other ones? And so just I think the big point to start with is it's clearly working right now. It's not, you know, it's not like an abstract argument. The fact that socialism is no longer a marginal political phenomenon in this country is due in large part to the Bernie campaign in 2016, AOC's victory, the Bernie campaign again in 2020. DSA would not exist as a organization of, I believe, almost 75,000 members today if it wasn't for the influx of members 
following these campaigns. And the reality is there's always costs and benefits to any strategy. It's definitely the case that it's not ideal using the Democratic Party ballot line because it has the potential to muddy the waters between class politics and capitalist politics. And everything we're doing as socialists is trying to draw the class line and not muddy it. So, for instance, Bernie supporting Joe Biden muddies uh, a class line when we want to make that more clear. But the question is, do those costs outweigh the benefits? And I would just say clearly no. The benefits of this approach have been that DSA has grown massively. Class politics has been put back at the center of U.S. political life. And contrary to, you know, traditional Democratic Party politics, these uh, candidacies have heightened social movements. Uh, You've seen the Bernie campaign, for instance, I've written about this quite a bit, helped inspire some of the key organizers of the teacher strikes in 2018. And so just over and over again, I think that the general dynamic is that using the Democratic Party ballot line has built up the forces of the left, heightened the contradictions, exposed the Democratic Party leadership, and started a process in which if it continues, we need more mass movements, but we also need more electoral victories. You can see it moving in the direction of us having finally enough strength to either break from the Democrats completely or get kicked out, um, but with the political base so that we can actually have our own party and not return to the margins of political life. So I'll leave it at that. I'm interested to hear what Kim has to say. Kim, you wrote an article that was recently published in New Politics that offers a critique of Eric's. And in it, you argue that the dirty break is vulnerable to many of the same pitfalls as the realignment strategy. Can you explain in greater detail your critique of the dirty break? Um, yes, I, I don't want to spend all the time on this because I think we need to talk about the political context that we're in now, which I believe is now different from the one we just went through. <clears throat> but People seem to be talking about, you know, both Eric and and in in the book that you two wrote, uh, is a long-term thing in which we're using the Democratic Party ballot line to create the base for this. Now, I think that's a sort of problem thing because I don't view the Democratic Party line as some neutral thing that anybody can use for any purpose. It's there to elect Democrats. If you're just running to propagandize for, uh, you know, idea of a political break or something, it's going to be sort of strange to be running in a Democratic election, Democratic Party ballot line uh, with a program of splitting that party. I think, you know, either you're saying that or it's a secret that the socialists keep to themselves until some future date, which seems to me fundamentally dishonest. I don't think you would get very far with that. But my big concern isn't even that. My big concern is that what happens when you win? When you win, you're not just on a ballot line anymore. You enter a new world. You enter a highly institutionalized social culture uh, in which things are expected of you. And people do tend to adapt to it, including AOC. You can see the process there. How do you be part of, let's say, the Congressional Democratic Caucus and yet not want to do what it wants to do uh, consistently? There aren't many people who do that. There are people who fight for a 
different position with the leadership, but when the leadership wins, uh, you know, it's almost like a, a Leninist party or something. That is, there is discipline in these caucuses. Most floor votes are disciplined by party and, and so forth. The idea that you can do anything you want to in that situation, not only in Congress, but most state legislatures, maybe a little different in city councils, um, you know, I, I think is, is wrong. Um, and so my concern is what are you going to do with a group of politicians, you know, who have run, become successful uh, and are therefore now part of the Democratic Party, even if they don't like it, even if they don't think of themselves that way, that is what they are. How do you how do you deal with that? Simply saying that you have your own base that is going to keep people honest. There, there really isn't much evidence that either that kind of electoral politics builds that mass base these days or that, um, you know, that that it's going to work in the long run. So uh, that's part of my thing. And another part of it is, you know, and I, I did say this in the article. If you if you look at the map of the U.S., you know, most cities are totally democratic. You know, that that is they may have a little enclave, a wealthy enclave of Republicans in one congressional or state district or something like that. But most cities are totally democratic, which means that on the one hand, yes, if you win the primary, you win the election, no doubt about that. But on the other hand, it also means there's an opportunity to start building an alternative politics. I, I don't, my own view, and I'll try to get to this in a, in a minute if, if, uh, if I can, my own view is that even that is not a good thing to do at this point today because we don't have a mass base and the thing the, the fundamental point i want to make is that running people for office like the greens do for example without a mass base uh, is from our point of view what we want to do is shift class power in the united states i presume we all agree on that and it seems to me that the way things are at the moment that is not running in the Democratic Party, or even trying to build independent things, say, in urban congressional districts or state assembly districts uh, at, at the moment, when we don't have that kind of mass base, is um, another recipe for failure. Like you said, most third, third parties fail. And the reason most third parties fail is because they don't have a mass base in the in the districts where they're running or in the labor movement or in the social movements and so forth. So I think to me, the, the primary question for socialists right now is not electoral activity at all. I mean, okay, I agree that Bernie put the word socialism back on the agenda. I agree that his campaigns and, and even those of AOC and so forth have shifted the the you know, kinds of issues which are coming up. But if you look at what's happening with the Democratic Party at the moment, despite the recent, you know, uh, victories in, in a couple of cases in New York and possibly Kentucky, Biden, Pelosi, these people are moving to the center. This is their strategy for winning. Uh, so what what my big analysis of the moment is that the whole dynamic that Bernie made possible is over. 
for the time being at least. There is no other Bernie. His campaign organization is dismantling the organizations. The other ones like our revolution, Justice Democrats, they're splitting and fragmenting, most of them going into the Biden campaign. And so I think the dynamic now is changing. And the dynamic is beat Trump by any means possible. And the means is Biden and winning a Democratic majority in Congress. This will be the line that comes from not just from the party establishment, but even from most of the progressives, say the Congressional Progressive Caucus, most of them. And it won't stop then because it will have to go to the midterm election uh, in order to maintain or win a congressional majority. And that, that, that's how you stop Trump and the Republicans, you know, in, in a very practical sense. Uh, I'm not for supporting those people, of course, uh, Biden, et cetera. But nonetheless, that will be the zeitgeist for the coming period. And, and we have to kind of face up to that. Eric's sort of arguing, and Micah and I would agree with this, that sure, Bernie Sanders did not change the political paradigm totally immediately. Like right now, you're completely right, Kim, that we're entering into a phase where the Democrats, the Democratic Party establishment is in charge of the upcoming election, and they're going to do what they always do, which is tack to the center. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to, you know, change that for the 2020 general election. But Eric's point, and, and me and Micah's point in the book that we wrote, is that Bernie Sanders's campaign has actually generated uh, a new type of mass base that it can that can uh, intervene in politics going forward, and that we're going to see effects of this for years and decades to come. So um, I want to ask you, Kim, to specifically respond to this argument, Eric's argument that the Bernie Sanders two presidential campaigns have significantly popularized class politics and advanced class struggle in the United States, and importantly, have helped build the kind of mass base that you are rightly emphasizing that we need to build? Well, I think the problem with the mass base, as you put it, that Bernie managed to assemble and other people have been able to win office on, on the basis of is not an organized mass base. It, you know, it's an electoral base. It's people who volunteered uh, for the campaign, who worked for it and so forth, who of course, voted for it in, in, in even bigger numbers. And I'm not saying at all that I don't think this had an impact on political thinking in this country. Uh, I think that's the case. I think there are more people who think socialism is a good thing. There are the polls on all of that. More people who think labor unions are a good thing. I don't think all of this is due to Bernie, but certainly the socialist part is. And you know, I was always for supporting Bernie. You're not talking to somebody who said we shouldn't support Bernie. I know I hang out with people who say that, but that wasn't my position. Uh, Some of your best friends make that argument. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, the the uh, I had my particular reasons. Bernie is somebody who my political tendency have known for decades. Uh, it wasn't a new thing to us. We had him speak at the Labor Notes Conference in 1993. He gave the opening talk, uh, and I introduced him and, and so forth. You know, this was not new to us. So when he decided to do that, even though we thought, well, you know, he's been 20 years in the Democratic caucus, it's kind of affected his thinking for sure. But nonetheless, he's a one of a kind, uh, and he really is a one of a kind. And, and so we thought, I thought, 
that this would have an impact, which it did of the kind. I, I don't disagree with Eric, everything Eric is saying about that, or, or even that you wrote in your book. Um, although I think there tends to be a kind of exaggeration about about this base. The problem with the base is that this base is not organized. Thousands of them are in DSA, and that's great. And DSA is growing, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, but DSA by itself cannot be the mass organization. Maybe there are places where it can play a role in this or that electoral campaign, you know, uh, and so forth. But, but that doesn't really get to the problem of how we get to the point where we could possibly have this kind of workers' party uh, or socialist party that, that you're talking about and that, you know, we pretty much all want. And I, I think also, by the way, the whole way that things are being done through PACs and super PACs and all this kind of thing is not the way we want to organize anything at all. Of course, you have to have money to run these days. That's pretty obvious. But to me, this is not the way we want to organize. We want to organize, you know, on the basis of many issues, not just the big ones like, you know, Medicare for all and so forth, uh, Green New Deal and all that, as important as they are, but what people face in, in their own communities, you know, rent strikes, uh, tenant organizing, union organizing, and, and so forth. So, that's my my sense is that okay there was this this mass base for the the election of Bernie and some, some of you know the others but you know I don't think the way the justice democrats for example run campaigns is the way we want to run campaigns uh, so again I keep coming back to the idea that we need a mass base and that means we have to do the work that builds that what I see happening now is not only that the electoral dynamic is to the center and we can't control that uh, and it's gonna be like that for quite a while. But on the other hand, we have two new movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is the most astounding thing uh, we've seen since the 60s. I mean, there's nothing else like it. Whether it is able to continue or not, I, I don't know. Um, I would think so if only because the police will continue to murder people. But even though it's focused on the police, I believe the implications of it go far beyond that to the whole structure of racism, which leads into the class issue and, and so forth. Um, the other thing, of course, are these these actions, most of them small, but, but beginning to happen uh, you know, during the pandemic, millions of people suddenly discovered that they were essential to the functioning of society in a way they didn't really know before. Now they've been told this, they take it seriously, and they're still treated like shit. So you get these rebellions and you get these efforts to begin to organize like in Amazon and elsewhere. So to me, the question is, what are we going to do about that? Those two movements. This is where the mass base potential lies, it's not there yet, but where it lies. And here I just want to say one thing, the labor bureaucracy, the labor officialdom is a big problem in all of this, including from your point of view, I would think, because they're going whole hog and are gonna put everything they can of their resources into the Biden campaign and into electing Democrats of any sort. 
Uh, and that's a problem because what they should be doing is helping these people at Amazon and so forth. Now, I think the, the emergency worker organizing committee that DSA is involved with is a, is a very good thing. It's, it's an excellent thing, but it's too small, right? You know, we need to get some of these unions or at least union members or at least local unions to be involved with these people, non-union people who are trying to organize something and trying to get not just PPE and so forth, but more and more things as, as this unfolds. Uh, and so I would say DSA members in their unions, you know, in, in the, first of all, the, you know, the, the primaries are over. So whatever you did in the primary, if you're in a union, what you should be doing is pushing this union to help these people organize, push it to be part of Black Lives Matter and push it to be uh, helping people to organize. Because I think we have the potential for a pre-CIO moment. Eric. Kim just brought up a lot of stuff there. I wonder if you could respond respond to um, first uh, his point about the mass base, such as it is that that came out of the Bernie campaign, uh, and and sort of how how you you think about that base of people that have come together, uh, you know, both through the Bernie campaign itself, the millions who got excited about Bernie, but then the smaller number of us who have joined groups like the Democratic Socialists of America. And then secondly, what he was bringing up at the end there uh, about the both uh, the incredible movement that has exploded in the streets over just the last few weeks in the United States, uh, as well as the efforts uh, uh, around uh, something like the emergency workers or emergency workplace organizing committee uh, and DSA and its, its work with a union like the United Electrical Workers. So uh, those those two points about the, the, the exciting movements that have kicked off lately, but also uh, what what we do with this base of people that have come out of the Bernie campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's true that the organized base of like socialists and independent labor activists of the Bernie campaign is significantly smaller than the Bernie campaign as a whole, but you have to start somewhere. And the question is whether uh, the Bernie campaign has aided the process of socialists building the base that we need or has been a detraction from it and whether candidacies like that, including, you know, other socialists running uh, are going to help that process or not. And I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming, uh, including some of the things that you mentioned, Kim, but, you know, it's just worth hammering home. Again, the fact that DSA right now is 75,000 members. It was like people would take that for granted, but it's not, it's not like a secondary thing. And it's not, uh, it's not at all the case that this would have happened in the absence of these dramatic electoral, uh, campaigns, which whether we like it or not, most, uh, people in this country still see their primary avenue for political participation as elections. So if we abandon that arena, I don't think that that's going to help build mass movements, but I think that actually what that will do ultimately is facilitate those mass movements getting co-opted back into regular Democratic Party politics. So I'm going to come back to that at the end. But what I just want to say, just for anecdotally, is so DSA has grown. I think we recruited 5,000 members in the week after Bernie dropped out. That's bigger than the entire far left pre-Bernie, right? So this isn't like, this is not insignificant. And moreover, the independent labor organizing that Kim, that I agree with you, we need, it has, there have been sentiments who've come out from the Bernie campaign 
uh, very concretely. So to give two examples, one is the New York City schools were shut down by teachers when um, de Blasio wanted to keep them open. And the organizing group that made that possible was literally the uh, WhatsApp chat and the organized group of that came out of that of educators for Bernie in New York. And it was that organizing that had taken place to try to push their union to support Bernie that then literally within you know a week or two then pivoted towards mass strike action. And similarly, uh, EWOC, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which I helped organize uh, together with others at first, um, that in large part came out of the Bernie campaign. You know, we, we used the networks we had built through the Bernie campaign and the labor for um, uh, union members for Bernie in particular to then pivot to workplace organizing. So I don't see that there is a contradiction. And I think that, in fact, we are seeing the type of organized base, which I agree you need. It's, you can't just have sort of amorphous people in the other. But we are seeing that. And DSA is a concretization of that type of uh, independent organization that we need. Is it too small still? Yes, of course. But that doesn't answer the question of whether these types of campaigns will help us move in the direction we need to. And I think they do. As far as the uh, protests, I agree with you. The Black Lives Matter protests and just the breadth of the participation is pretty astounding. The question then is raised, uh, well, what next? And again, this poses the issue of having an independent political expression that is not just staying on the streets. It's very hard to just stay on the streets over and over and over again. We we should always promote that. But unless you have uh, campaigns around defunding the police, I have a hard time imagining uh, the movement be able to cohere without political demands and without organized campaigns. And so this raises the issue then, well, who is going to fight to defund the police? If you're just in the streets, what the dynamic that we see in New York and a lot of other places is you have liberal Democrats um, trying to take the reins and the momentum of this movement and to challenge into as innocuous um, demands as possible for the regime that don't really fundamentally take on the structures of institutionalized racism or the uh, really disparate race and class austerity regimes that make over-policing and the absence of welfare state uh, the conditions that we're all used to in this country. And so I think then that raises the possibility of DSA candidates. I'm thinking very concretely in New York, for instance, Jabari Brisport, uh, Zoran, um, and others who look like they just won. Even if they're a minority in state government, they're going to be able to be spokespeople for these protests in a way that they were already at, they've been at the protest, and they're going to be able to raise the political demands of the movements within the halls of power. And without candidates like that who are actually organically linked to socialists and the movements, I think what you're going to end up seeing is not the further deepening of the movements, but a tendency for them to either dissipate and or get co-opted. So I think it's actually absolutely essential that we continue to combine electoral politics with mass movements in the streets. And how you do that, of course, there's always tensions there. But there's very little evidence, I would see, in this country or elsewhere that um, the two are ultimately contradictory or that you can build a mass base without an electoral expression. I just haven't seen that work in this country or elsewhere. Uh, Kim, do you want to respond to some of that? I mean, obviously, you know from from reading Eric and reading Jackman that nobody uh, is quite arguing. Nobody's arguing for, like, all the eggs in the basket of electoral organizing as opposed to street level organizing, you know, organizing at workplaces and joining these protests. Uh, 
so the argument is is about sort of like nimbly uh moving from one to the other and and having as eric just said the kind of electoral expression of that uh uh of the you know the, uh, have, having electoral representatives who are fighting for the demands that come from the streets and, and the workplaces and all of that so i guess the, the question would be like what is what's wrong with that strategy where you try to do both at the same time I think what's wrong with it is that, to a certain extent, you can't do both at the same time. Uh, you do have to make choices, not only in terms of of resources, but politically. Now, if you're telling the movement to take an electoral direction, you don't get to choose the candidates. You can say, well, no, no, not those, only mine, but it isn't going to work that way. And can I think of a movement that had no electoral uh, presence that had enormous effect. Yes, it was the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Yes, you can have movements without uh, without that. The early CIO didn't have much to do with uh, Democratic Party politics. Eventually, of course, it did. And the pre-CIO, 33 through essentially early 36 and so forth, uh, didn't have much to do with electoral politics. It had something to do with it, but, but not primarily. Um, so the the funny thing to me is then when you, you're not for changing the party, but yet the arguments that you give about having these socialists in the Democratic Party in the halls of power and so forth sound an awful lot like that. You're saying, well, they can influence this. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think they're the ones that influence it. I think it's disruption that influences that created the Second New Deal, that created the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and so forth. I don't think it had either of those cases had, I mean, you already had the Roosevelt administration, but it wasn't even doing the right thing until, you know, it began to do semi-right things in 1935. The movement came way before that. And, you know, so to me, looking at, at history, I don't, see it quite the way you do. I, I don't see that having a handful of socialists who are not in favor of a break, who tell you explicitly they think they're going to reform this party, you know, is the, the thing that we want these movements to do. To me, what we should be doing is getting these movements. It's true, they can't stay in the streets in the same way all the time. What they could be doing is building grassroots community-based organizations or helping to organize unions in their area among people who are trying to do that already. Uh, and, and they could be building these. A lot of these people are gonna vote Democratic anyway, one way or the other, there's not much doubt about that. I'm not particularly for spending a lot of time arguing with them about that. But what I would want to do is take my 75,000 members and say, we could make a difference in this that we can't make, in fact, in moving the, this, this Democratic Party regime that is now moving to the center. You know, in the 1980s, you know how many DSA members there were in Congress? Ron Dellums, right? Yeah, there were three, Dellums, um, Conyers, and uh, Major Owen from Brooklyn uh, were DSA members. Big deal. They all were totally absorbed into the party. Of course, it was a different period. I know. I, I understand that. Uh, I mean, what what I have thought about 
the the presence of people like AOC and Bernie Sanders is that uh, even if they don't subscribe to the belief that we need to be breaking with the Democratic Party, even if they are making the case for realignment, that their actions are certainly uh, heightening the contradictions within the party. I mean, Bernie running for the Democratic nomination for president and having the Democratic Party establishment do everything in its power to destroy his campaign and you know as i've as i've said uh, previously i mean this is a guy he's not he was not arguing for the dictatorship of the proletariat he was arguing for some very basic social democratic gains like medicare for all and yet this is what the party did to him so i feel like there are now millions of people who who understand at a very tangible level what is wrong with the Democratic Party that they uh, would mobilize that way against a candidate like Bernie? Or when AOC tells a journalist, uh, you know, who mentions something about the fact that she and Joe Biden are in the same party, and she stops him and says, you know, just so you understand, if we were in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party. I feel like that kind of agitation, you know, AOC doing the sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office on her first day, all that stuff, is is generating uh what what we as as socialists who want to see a break from the democratic party one way or the other uh would want which is you know a, a growing consciousness of uh of people that there's something wrong with this party and uh it's a real problem that we're stuck with them and that seems like a good thing to me okay by the way i didn't disagree with what eric said about bernie's impact Clearly, the, this was, you know, a, a big deal. I, I don't have any disagreements about that. The problem is that's over, you know, and now we're dealing with something on a different scale, uh, you know, in a different context. And unfortunately, there's only one Bernie. This is this is a problem. I don't see who's going to be the big challenger next time. There may there probably will be one, but. You know, will it be the same kind of thing? AOC won't be old enough, by the way. My stepdaughter, who is the biggest AOC fan in the United Kingdom, uh, keeps me abreast of all of this. But in in any case, I I just think, you know, the situation post-Bernie is is different than the Bernie situation. And he, he didn't succeed in what he wanted to do. Uh, and I would argue probably couldn't, but that isn't the reason for supporting him. Can I do a quick response to that? So I definitely disagree that the Bernie campaign ending somehow spells the end of the utility or even era of Bernie-type campaigns. I mean, literally just this week, we had pretty important victories for not minor races in New York and, and Kentucky, Um, and that seems to me to indicate if anything, we just have started and barely scratched the surface for the type of power and organized base we can build through socialist campaigns. So it's just concretely, um, you know, the idea that this is just going to be like undifferentiated from the democratic party. I don't see that, uh, in part, because if you look at Chicago where you have a socialist caucus and you have, uh, you know, you have candidates and elected officials actively supporting the protests, you do see people see in practice who's there. They see in practice uh, who's fighting. AOC and Bernie, as Bernie, as Micah said, 
even if they want to take over the party, they're still fighting on Green New Deal, Medicare for All. The fact that AOC supported Bernie against the apparatus shows that there isn't this like iron law of Democratic Party co-optation, that things could go different ways. And the extent to which the people who are fighting with the Democratic Party, even if they don't already agree with us on the need for a new party, it's totally the case that despite that, they can build the types of contradictions and popular politics that help us move in that direction. And I think that one other thing that we shouldn't underestimate, and this is what I was saying before, my point was not that no movements can grow and build a base without electoral politics. My point is that no socialist movement, to my knowledge in history of the world, has built, in democratic uh, countries at least, has built a mass base without having an electoral expression as well. And I think that part of the reason for that is you can imagine what we can do, for instance, in New York with some of our candidates, even if they're a minority, in raising these demands around defund the police, not just on the halls of you know Albany, but in organizing mass meetings and organizing door to door and using the legitimacy of their posts to build a mass base. And that's historically one of the main utilities of having people in office is you can do things like that. And we have only really begun that process and if not ended it. And I'll just end with this. If you're pointing to the examples of the 1930s and 60s as something to be emulated, I, again, I'm I'm going to disagree on that because both of those movements very quickly actually got subordinated politically to Democratic Party politics precisely because they didn't have an independent political expression. Because if you have mass strikes and you have mass sit-ins, inevitably those are directed towards the state. And you want, and people naturally were going to look towards politicians to meet some of their demands. And unless you have independent working class politicians uh, raising that, inevitably the dynamic, whether we push it to or not, is going to be towards left or evil type politics. And so I don't think we should replicate the limitations of the 30s and 60s. I think that insofar as we have mass movements, strikes, we want that and we should build that, but we should try to overcome the limitations of those cases by simultaneously building a political expression um, and not just assuming that that will happen down the road. Because the problem is when you do that, half the times the movements get co-opted before you can actually get to that break. Eric, you are much more optimistic than Kim that we have the raw material here to start pursuing a dirty break strategy. But Kim earlier brought up something that we hear a lot, Micah and I, when we talk about our book from people about this sort of argument. And I think it's a very legitimate question. Micah and I are sort of still struggling with, uh, you know, how to how to answer it with the sort of thoughtfulness and nuance that it deserves. Um, you know, Kim expressed some skepticism that we're actually going to pull off this break. I mean, what kind of horizon are we looking at here? Is this a 10-year project, a 50-year project? And furthermore, how are we going to, A, how are we going to know that we're ready to break? And B, as Kim has pointed out several times, how do socialists uh, running and governing nominally as Democrats avoid co-optation in the meantime? Yeah, super good question. Um, I think, again, we should look at this in some ways as the beginning of a process and not the end of it. And so to concretize that, the reality is most of the DSA candidates who've been elected are not really organic DSA members. It's not people who sort of uh, came in through the ranks and are deeply committed to democratic socialism or Marxism. Uh, That's actually completely the exception rather than the rule. And so the types of contradictions that you raised, Kim, uh, you know, as far as the elected officials of, you know, of DSA uh, pursuing a different strategy is not wrong, but it's also not inevitable. Um, 
which raises the question of, for instance, looking at the city council race in Louisville, in which uh, I think is more of an example of the type of direction that DSA should be going, in which the DSA locally ran uh, our comrade Robert Lavertis Bell, who's a rank and file teacher activist, participated in the walkouts, black militant from a civil rights uh, family who ran as a socialist and who's a Marxist and who has an independence and a political clarity that will make it easier, although not uh, easy completely, will make it easier to resist the types of co-optation dynamics that happen uh, inevitably. But that if you're a Marxist and you're directly linked to uh, DSA and steeled in class politics, you're going to have a much easier time navigating uh, a tricky situation. So I do think that for DSA, one of the ways that we can avoid co-optation is by trying insofar as we can to uh, have a pipeline for and development of our own candidates uh, who both have more uh, of our dirty break politics and who also just are uh, a little bit more accountable to our organizations um, and not just to Justice Democrats and others. You know, AOC, I think, is very honest about what her politics were and they haven't changed. I don't think she's gotten co-opted. You know, she was never for breaking from the Democratic Party. Um, And so I think that if we are going to avoid cooptation, that's part of it. The other thing is, we should just be honest, um, the rhythms of class struggle will depend, uh, will determine a lot of this. If we elect socialists and there's not mass strikes and there's not mass protests, there's going to be a lot uh, more difficulties in staying true to the... uh, kind of impetus for why these candidates got elected um, in the first place. That being said, I'm pretty optimistic that, you know, for instance, if you can imagine a situation in which Biden beats Trump, is elected relatively weak, uh, with a relatively weak mandate, you know, people are against Trump, but it's not, not particularly pro-Biden. And I think the dynamic will be more likely than not, uh, not a repetition of Obama in which there's a honeymoon period, but which actually in large part because of the BLM protests and because of the Bernie campaign, people are like, okay, we're going to take to the streets now, Biden, to force you to do Medicare for all, to force you to defund the police. And I think that having some socialists uh, in Congress nationally and local office is going to be crucial to being able to give a political platform to that types of demands that we need, not just in the streets, in the hall of power. And so I don't think the inevitable pressures uh, are going to be bearing down upon us. I think, in fact, the general, despite the Democratic Party moving to the right, I think we are continuing to win the ideological argument. And the Democratic Party is really on the ideological defensive at this point, which gives us leverage to push back against co-optation and to use even our minority of candidates who are elected um, to really expose and push against the establishment rather than to get absorbed into it. Again, that's contingent on the class struggle, but everything is. I think we have a good sense of what Eric thinks the strategy should be going forward. And I actually want to turn that over to Kim and ask you, Kim, if you could summarize for a lot of the listeners of this podcast are going to be members of DSA or otherwise American socialists. If you could sort of summarize what you think the strategy should be in this moment and in the near future for the American socialist movement. Okay. Let me just say that you know, although I, I don't think he means it, what what I hear when Eric makes these arguments is not a break. What I hear is that by electing socialists as Democrats, we can make a political difference and build a socialist movement. This I disagree with. 
Um, you know, we, we, we can go th back through all the arguments, historical arguments and everything, but I, I think there's no evidence for that one, uh, you know, at all, even if you have people who are challenging the mainstream, you know, of the, of the Democratic Party and so forth. I think the message that you would send to people is that it's okay to run in the Democratic Party, period. Uh, so I, I, I don't agree with that. What I think people in, in DSA or other socialists should be doing in the United States, or for that matter, where I am here, uh, even though I'm not really in a position right now to do much of it, uh, is what I said. I think that our emphasis has got to be to help these movements that are basically somewhat, that are spontaneous. Uh, it's a bad word, I know. There are leaders out there and so forth, and we need to find them, and they need to find themselves. The movement needs to find them. But to urge people to create permanent organizations that, yes, they demand things on the police. They demand health care. They demand all these things. Absolutely, of course. And they pressure politicians, and they do things that movements have done historically. My reading of American politics is that things change when there are mass movements, and they don't change when there aren't. It's, it's just about that simple. And <clears throat> so here we have the potential, not the inevitability, but the potential of some new mass movements if, if the socialists and the labor leaders and so forth, it isn't just up to the, you know, to the socialists or too, too few, but to the labor movement. Um, I mean, they have a real problem with this police thing. Look, look at what the major labor leaders are now saying. They're waffling all over the place on this. Um, because they they have the police unions in their midst and and so forth, you know that's something we have to fight in the in the unions, you know, and and the question of, um, you know the 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 organizing and so forth. So that's what I think people should be doing right now, you know, for for your perspective, electing socialists, the election is over, right? There's no possibility of electing any socialists that aren't already elected in 2020 because the, the you know except maybe for a few primaries or something it's it's over so for now um yeah take advantage pressure aoc get them out she's a great spokesperson a big media star and all the rest of that globally uh you know and, and all the rest of it but what we need to be doing is building this yes i agree ultimately these movements have to have an electoral expression uh, I don't disagree with that at all, but it matters to me whether it is actually independent. And by independent, I mean it has to be its own political party organization. Uh, if it isn't that, it isn't independent. If it's another pressure group in the Democratic Party, then it's not on the road that I think we need to take. Uh, right now, there's not a lot we can do about elections. And I think that'll be true for the next couple of years. I don't know what will, you know, if for, the, for the midterm elections and so forth. But uh, right now, it seems to me our priority is to uh, do that and, and to build these, these movements, to help them build infrastructure, uh, you know, be, to political education, uh, present class analysis, and, and also race analysis. By the way, I think this is one of the, 
pleasing things about this new mass movement is what it says to all these people who are trying to say, oh, we can't, we don't need race issues anymore. We just need universal questions, you know, like Cedric Johnson and, and uh, Toure Reed and, and people like that. Well, guess what? Now it's in your face. We have race issues and you'd better take them seriously, you know, if we want to build any kind of movement. I, I have to say, I'm, I haven't read Teray Reed's book. I'm not sure he would quite agree with that characterization. He wrote something for us the other day about uh, uh, the recent uh, birder, the black birder incident in Central Park. So, uh, but but I I think re- listeners can understand the basic the basic thrust of what you're what you're talking about here. Um, Eric, uh, very quickly, uh, can I, I'll just turn it to you as a, for a final response uh, to end the conversation. I think it's been a useful discussion. It's always a little bit tricky on this because it would be in some ways easier if I were an electoralist and just like, actually, no, elections are the main thing. To to be honest, the Bernie campaign this last time was like the first time I really spent a bunch of time doing electoral politics for, I don't know, since I was 14, 20 years, I've almost only done labor and social movement stuff. So I agree with you, Kim. I just don't see in my experience personally or in my reading of what's gone on in the last five years, how we should or why we should counterpose these two, right? Uh, I don't see within DSA, the idea that like DSA is primarily oriented towards electoral politics is not actually what I see. If anything, it was like a slug, it was a, it was a slog to get people excited about the Bernie campaign because the norm people, I think not wrongly, are quite skeptical about electoral politics in this country. Um, but that's not necessarily always a good thing. It reflects a general uh, resignation and a lack of belief in the possibility of change. And so I think what we need to be able to do to change that is not just mass protests, but like the possibility of even on a local level uh, in New York and some places of people seeing material differences in their lives um, being made both in response to protests and because there's socialists in the halls of power fighting for that. The changes that that can bring about, I think, are what's going to be needed over the next five, 10 years to build the kind of base we need and to make it so that these spontaneous protests that actually the United States has had quite a lot of compared to other countries really over the last, really since the Iraq war, you just had mass upsurge after mass upsurge, anti-war, immigrant rights, BLM, you name it, Occupy, right? But if we're going to get ourselves out of this just up and down, people go out into the streets and home, I don't see how you can do that without having an electoral expression. And I think in, we'll, we'll see over the next year or two uh, which of these strategies proves to be uh, more fruitful. Well, and we should also say as a kind of concluding thought here that uh, we've been debating what the emphasis for socialists today should be on their work. But, uh, you know, Eric, you've been, worked on the Ewok campaign, the emergency workplace organizing campaign. Uh, and uh, I, I, you, I've seen photos of you, I think, out in the streets during these protests. So I think we all uh, agree that what, whatever our uh, electoral strategy is, we also recognize that this is a really unique moment for uh, militant uh, grassroots and, and uh, workplace organizing that uh, socialists everywhere should be uh, jumping in on with both feet. So uh, I want to say thank you to uh, both Kim and Eric uh, for coming on the podcast to discuss this. Hey, thank you. Thank you guys so much. That was a great conversation. <laughs>